0: turn, if you will, to Job chapter 9. We're headed for Hebrews 2. What we're doing in the month of uh, December is dealing with classic passages that deal with our Savior. Last week, we looked at 10 reasons why John chapter 1 says he's God. Uh, Today, we'll look at seven reasons why he became a man. Next week, uh, Matt Nicosia will be dealing with A marvelous, marvelous passage, the kenosis passage of Philippians 2. And then the next week, we will deal with what Christ is doing in heaven now. And for our final in the month, uh, Larry Howard will be doing a message on what the coming of Christ will look like to his people. And so we're trying to put the emphasis on uh, Christological themes all month and using classic powerful passages. Today, we want to look at the humanity of Christ. Why did Christ become a man? And we will look at seven reasons he gives in Hebrews 2. But I want you to look, if you will, at Job. Job is uh, suffering as few men have ever suffered in history. He uh, has buried 10 children he has lost all of his financial holdings. His body has been stricken with boils, uh, every sort of affliction. Worms are infesting the uh, infected open sores. He's in ashes. Uh, and he's surrounded by men that are as dumb as clucks as, as to why he's in his situation. But they're so-called wise men, comforters, but they miss miss. Because they know in their theology, a righteous man cannot suffer this much. It makes good sense. The righteous do not suffer like this. If you know God, if you know Christ, you're immune from suffering. No bigger lie has been told us. And here's a man without the book of Genesis, without the book of Psalms, The first book in the Bible, before Abraham, he's suffering, and he's suffering, and he takes his case to God, and he says in Job 9, I'll pick up verse 32, for he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Uh, I can't enter court. I can't enter arbitration. I can't reach this one. He's up there. He's transcendent. I'm not dealing with a man, so he's totally insensitive, maybe unaware of my plight. There is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on us both. I don't have anyone to bring the two parties together and arbitrate, as it were, a peace. I'm suffering. I don't know what I've done to offend God, but I don't have anyone to present my case. I don't have anyone to end the beef. Whatever I've done to offend him, I don't know how to resolve it. Let him take his rod away from me And let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. I'm scared to present to God how I really feel. I have no man that can interpret my feelings, no go-between. Jesus is the answer to Job's cry. Paul said, We have one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, that can lay hands on both us and on God and be our representative. And Hebrews says, From now on, I want my people to come with confidence, boldness, literally freedom of speech, and pour out your heart, not in theological language not in poetry, but in gut-level feelings. I feel desperate. I want to tell you how I feel. I'm not here to impress deity. I'm here to express my humanity. And I've got a God-man in the third heaven that can interpret every feeling I have to the Father. And what he doesn't do, the Spirit, is making intercession for us. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes up the theme of, man, of rather Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a psalm written to the majesty and glory of man. He talks about physical creation. And then he says, But you made man a little bit lower than the angels. And let us look at Hebrews 2. We'll pick up at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Notice this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is he saying? Man, man has been stripped of being everything God intended because of sin, yet he's been made lower than the angels, and yet the psalmist is stricken by this. God cares for man. Why would you set your mind upon us? The first reason Jesus came in this passage is he cares for the human race. He cares for us. Why would you care for the human race? Why would you care for mankind that from the beginning chose to disobey, chose to go our own way, chose to be stubborn in our determination to sin. Jesus came because God cares. He cares about what happens to human beings. What an amazing, amazing statement that God doesn't just observe that our station, we were meant to be rulers of the earth, we were meant to be over everything, and yet right now we don't see everything in subjection. I I think of the plant world, how that plants, we're dependent on plants. We need Coke. We need morphine. We need marijuana to chill out. We need drugs. We need plants. Plants. We live on plants. We're a drug-addicted culture, whether it's opioids or other, no matter if it's for pain or for pleasure. We're hooked on the plant world. God meant for us to reign over everything. And in our sinfulness, we have fallen so low. We say, I can't live without a drug. I can't live without this. What do you mean? You were made to be a ruler. You were made to supervise and superintend the garden and all of creation. God didn't make us to be subjected to all that we're going through because of our sin. Someday, the perfect man will regain for us the rule over the earth and put creation in subjection to him, remove the curse, take away the thorn, take away the lion's appetite for the lamb. They will lie down together. That's coming. But now, man in his pitiful state, God says, I care for what happens to them. Second reason he came, he goes on to say that he came in verse 9 we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone you must remember there's a cross over Bethlehem the birth of Christ saves no one The birth of Christ saves no one. But he was born that he might die. And he took a form that God could not die on the throne. Eternal spirit cannot die. But he said, I will stoop low enough so that I could come and taste death for every man. And the depth of the meaning of that, I do not comprehend that he tasted death Adam died and killed the whole race. In Romans 5, it says that, that he represented us. And here Christ comes in order that he might die. Born to die. I will get, you know, we would do everything to save our life. Think of a child. We're always trying to protect. Keep you immune from hurting. Immune from pain. And yet the son and the father agree. I will come in order that I might die. I think of what he exchanged. I would change my address. I would change from glory to the ghetto of Galilee. You know, when he he wound up, even the wise men, if you read the story, the wise men, when they came to Jesus, he wasn't in the manger. He was in a house. See, the shepherds came to him when he was in the manger. The wise men about two years later found him in a house, and he's living in Nazareth, which was the Gentile region of Galilee, which had become the red-light district for the Roman army. They went to Galilee to get away from the religious uh, life of Jerusalem. You went there for party time. You went there for the brothel. You went there. To act as Roman soldiers. Jesus was born in the ghetto of Palestine that he might reach us. He came from glory. He came to shame. He came, left the riches of glory for the poverty of the earth. He changed his glory to obscurity. He told the Father in John 17, I long to resume the glory. I had with you before I came. I just want to go back to the glory, the external manifestation of all that I am. This he did for us. This he did for us, that he might die. Uh, here's some verses in verse 10 uh, through 13 that astound me. And I must say this passage, is one of my favorite to do at Christmas. I I would do it every year until I die because it explains why would God come among us. Listen to what it says. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder or the pioneer of their salvation perfect Fitted is the idea, not moral perfection. He already had that. But this word is often used, a fitted, for what it was designed. He came to be sympathetic. So God took him and put him through a process. You're fitted through your suffering to represent God's people. But notice, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What did he just say? This is astounding. He who sanctifies, who sanctifies us? It comes from God. Which member of the Godhead is he talking about here? The son, it looks to me like, or let's say it's a father. It's one of the Godhead. But for he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified all have one source. Isn't that amazing? We people who have been set apart by God, we have a source in our life. We have a source of life that comes from above. Now watch, watch. I developed this. Watch this. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers, did you see what it said? Now watch, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you know where that's, do you know where that verse comes from? Do you remember these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the same psalm, Psalm 22, that when he's talking about the bulls of Bashan are goring me, uh, I become a worm and no man in verse 6 of the psalm, and he's talking about the lion stalking him, speaking of the audience and the crowd at the cross. But while he's on that cross, he begins to see the future, and he says, I can't wait until I have a celebration service with my brothers. On the cross. This is Psalms 22. I'm anticipating because of what I'm doing on the cross. I will go back to more than fishermen. I will go back to my brothers. And we're going to celebrate. Now watch. Watch. Come on. Right here. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again. Behold, I am the children God has given me. And how did you get children? I went to the cross for them to give, to sanctify them, to substitute for them, to beget a family. I came in order to start a family that I could call brothers, that I could call the children of God. Jesus started it on the cross. Is it sacrilegious for me to call Jesus my elder brother? See, he calls me the brother. You know, I hear people say, Jesus is my friend. Well, I know what you mean, what a friend we have in Jesus. I know the sentiment. But you know what? There's no place they ever called him friend. He called us friends. John 15, I call you friends. But really, I like to go a little bit, hi, Jesus, buddy, buddy. No, 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 no. Don't strip him of his majesty just because you want familiarity. He's Lord of lords, king of kings. He calls you brother. He calls you children. Well, that does open the gate for a little bit. It is wonderful if you grew up where I did in Richmond. Believe me, it's a benefit to have older brothers. And the projects being alone ain't good. No, and and my mother was a mother-mother. If I came in, and he hated it because he's the older brother, Paul had almost gone. If one beat up one of us Howard kids, let me tell you, there's four more to go. Because if my mother had to go out there and fight, she would. Because you're not going to run over my kids. I'm full-blooded Irish, and I'm not afraid to fight. And boy, David was sick of it. Because if Ruth got hit, he'd have to go out and hit a girl. Boom. Usually my cousin. Boom. Leave him alone. Why did you do that? Mom sent me. There are advantages. So it is right to think of Jesus as your elder brother. You know, it's beautiful. In the Old Testament, God knew that fellow Jews could go bankrupt fellow Jews could fall into financial straits. This happened in the book of Ruth. Naomi and her two sons went into another country because of famine in Bethlehem. As they flee to go away, the boys marry foreign women. And uh, the boys die. Naomi's husband dies. She even says when she goes back at the... Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. I'm grieving. And she had this Gentile girl named Ruth clinging to her and said, I want to go with you. Your people will be my people. Where you rest, I will rest. Your fate is mine. And they get there. They've lost their property. They've lost their husband. They're now homeless. They're now on welfare, as it were. And so Naomi sends Ruth, there's a custom in Israel that the poor can go to the corners of the field. And they were not allowed to harvest the corner of a field. That's where the poor of the land could eat. Go pick the grain from the corner. She goes out there. And she comes back and she said, I've gathered grain today from a man's field named Boaz. Naomi said, this is providential. You see, to get our property back, to get any standing in Israel back, we need a kinsman who would bail us out of bankruptcy. We need a kinsman who could reclaim our land. We need a kinsman that would put us under his garment, as it were, and become a provider. We're bankrupt. We have no property. We're just aliens in our own home city. Finally, they go to city council meeting. All the elders meet at the city gate. And Boaz was not first in line. The first heir was another man, and they go to city council meeting and said, the property's up to be redeemed because they were not allowed by the law to get rid of the property. They wanted to have an inheritance in Israel. And the first buyer said, the land is on the block. You can buy it. It can become your land. The man said, I'll take it. Good. Write it up. How much? Is ready to fetch out the coinage. And all of a sudden, he said, one thing we must tell you, the Gentile girl comes with the land. He said, I want land. I don't want another woman. I, I sure don't want a Gentile girl. Because you see, he didn't love Ruth. If to be a redeemer took three things. You had to have the finances to buy the property. You had to be related by blood, and you had to be willing. Jesus became my brother because he had the price to buy me out of slavery. He came my kinsman, and he became a man that he might buy me back. And you know the amazing thing is he loves me. He so loved me that he came and said, I'm going to buy back everything you lost in Adam. I'm going to buy back everything you lost in the fall. And so now I not only got back God, got back heaven and paradise. Jesus says, we're now going to be family. If you're not here and know Christ, you're not in the divine family and you're not under the protection of the elder brother. He said in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, may you come to rest under the wings of the almighty, Ruth. May you in Bethlehem get under the wings of the living God. You're a widow. You've buried husbands, sons. And you're left with a Gentile girl at your table. But may you come under the wings of the Almighty. Let me tell you, in Jesus, the wings of the Almighty came. And he began to form a family, a family of children and brothers. I am related to Jesus Christ by the blood of the cross. That's why he came. He started a family. Are you in it? If you'll be born again, if you'll trust Christ, Have you left the family? Have you lost your inheritance? Have you lost your joy? He's waiting at the table. He doesn't beget what he plans to give up. He's the elder brother that steps up for us. He goes on to say, he did something to death and the devil when he came. The fourth reason he came as a man was to defeat death and the devil. And look what it says. These passages, I hope you just chew on them for the holiday. They're so profound. This poor stammering lip of mine can barely articulate it. He said that through death he might destroy, not annihilate. The word means to render inoperative. He might render inoperative the one who has the power of death And I'm expecting him to say, that is God. What did he say? That is the devil. You mean the devil has got power in the realm of death? He sure did. For sure before the cross. You mean, did the devil kill people? If he had power in the realm of death, he did He killed the whole race in Genesis 3 by talking us in doing the thing that would bring our death. We were doing fine in the garden until the voice of the devil showed up. And he said, eat it, it won't kill you. Do it, it won't hurt you. You liar. You murderer. I've been burying loved ones ever since because we bought the lie. And you killed the race with a lie. God won't judge you for your sin. He will judge you for your sin. There's no escape from the judgment, do you, except in the one who came. If you don't flee to Jesus, you will die for your sins. And Satan brought death and destruction for Jesus. said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. But the thief comes to kill, to murder, and destroy. If you're in the hands of Satan, he's out to kill you. But Jesus said, I came to render him inoperative. You remember Job? That In all of his suffering, God had to tell the devil, and you can't kill him. You can touch his body. You can take his health. You can take his children. You can take his wealth. But you can't kill him. Why did he say that? Because he knew it's what the, de- uh, Job, the devil wanted to kill him, but God put the restraint. But Jesus forever changed the cemetery for his own. He forever, forever changed death for the believer, and that instead of it being the most terrifying moment in our existence, we have yet to see what the presence of Christ will do for us in our dying hour. He said, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Can you imagine? We were enslaved to the fear of death before Jesus came. You know, we've got Psalms 23 that's been used at a, a, a million funerals, as it were. Uh, what did they do in the Old Testament? Some were not sure of the resurrection, although God Hinted at it in Daniel 12, Isaiah 28, different verses. But there was this fear of death in the cemetery that Jesus forever changed for his own. My father used to say when Jesus died, he installed lights in the cemetery. It's all lit up for us now. He installed lights. Do you get it? I mean, do you believe what we're reading? I'm not making this up, am I? I'm reading the verse. If you can interpret it better, run up here right now. Lay it on us. I I, I stagger at what it's saying. It's amazing. Then he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, (laughs) but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, Galatians 3 said we're related to Abraham as the children of faith in the sense of spiritual seed. But, of course, he had physical descendants. I think it applies to all that know the God of Abraham. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus came to be qualified to represent us to God. And uh, you know the high priest in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the 14th day of Nisan, once a year, that high priest job was twofold. He was to represent us, the worshiper, to God, and then he was to represent God to the worshipers. So it goes this way. For me to be represented, what did the high priest have to bring? He had to bring a bloody sacrifice because God says, your sin has kept you from just coming to me without a sacrifice. Someone has to die. For me to accept that, to let you in to my presence. So he goes in there with fear and trepidation. Some, many stories, Josephus and others say they tied ropes around high priests in case they were killed so they could drag them out from underneath the curtain. It was a dangerous assignment because if he was defiled ceremonially, any disqualification, God could kill him on the spot. So it's dangerous. He would come in. He sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat. And if he's still alive, God's accepted that blood, accepted his, his purification before God. And then the high priest comes back, and his message is now, You've been pardoned another year. Your sins have been rolled back for another 360 days. We're okay for another year. God's been pleased with what's been offered to him. Now, Jesus says, I came that I might be not only a high priest, but merciful and faithful to represent you before God. Uh, Amazing. You mean Jesus is your best representative? I think so. Let me ask you, do you have anybody representing you in California Senate? Anybody representing you at the tax man's office? You don't have representation. I don't think you do. I've lost my vote in California for 30 years. They, they throw my vote in the trash can. I voted against same-sex marriage. And even though the popular vote won, the judicial system said that's unlawful. So why do we even vote on it? So I, I, my vote isn't going to go, I don't have anybody. I know my brother when he was in politics heavy got a guy's driver's license back just because he'd call a state representative. boy needs his license. They sent it. It's great. I wish I knew somebody that well that had some real power. But you know what? I do have the Lord Jesus and no one less than him representing me before God. And he's faithful and he's merciful. I'm glad it didn't say he's critical and he's cold And it doesn't matter. Get over what you're going through. He represents us as a merciful and faithful high priest. What else did he do? He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. NIV has atonement. That's a nice word, but the atonement is broad word. Christ did many things about 22 things he did on the cross, he redeemed, he reconciled, he propitiated, he did all, all kinds of but when you say propitiation, it, it, it's a little hard for some people to say it has more than three vows. Uh, it really emphasizes he took away everything about me that makes God angry. He, he removed everything about us that God's justice would have to judge and that God's justice needed to be satisfied. So Jesus comes and he says, Father, I will satisfy you once and for all on behalf of the sinners that I represent. Without Jesus, you don't have a representative before God. Without Jesus, you don't have anyone that can satisfy God's wrath against your sins. We think we're cool. We think we're our own men. God says, you're not. I must judge your sin. But when Jesus is received as your Savior, he also, you get the benefit, he has satisfied God thoroughly about anything you'll ever do that's wrong. I've had people ask me, Said, well, in other words, I can go out and sin like everything. Go ahead and do it if you want to. Go ahead and sin. If you want to sin, go ahead. You heard it from me. I said you could do it. Go. you just prove you don't know him. Go ahead. There's no child of God who wants to sin against a God that died for them. But you all sin. But we do it out of failure. We do it with regret. We do it, uh, it pains us. You can't sin against a God you can call Father and it not pain you. He who says he's without sin is a liar, according to John. So we do sin. But I tell you, go to the one who represents you, and he will remind the Father, this is why I died. I died to satisfy you in regard to their sin. It is astounding. It's astounding. I'm so glad the Bible is above my mind. I could only understand it by the Spirit of God. See, if you don't believe the Bible, it doesn't change anything. It just makes you an unbeliever. You don't change this. You, but at least we could be staggered. And for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the word able to help is run to the cry of a baby. He is able to run to the cry of his people for help. Now, was, was Jesus ever tempted let me, let me read some things. Have you ever been hungry? He was hungry. Ever been poor? He, though rich, became poor. Uh, ever been unfairly treated? He was unfairly treated. Ever been mocked? He was mocked. He was injured. He was lonely. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was called the bastard child of Joseph and Mary. He uh, had a broken heart. He wept over Jerusalem. He was abused. He was abandoned. He was not believed. He endured suffering. He endured sickness. He endured torture. He's willing to die and died in the face of death. He was tested, tempted, unappreciated, faced singleness, forced stigma. He was a hated man all of his life. There is an effort to kill him from the time the word gets out. He's been born. Herod organizes some soldiers to kill the baby. You've never been tempted more than this one. Never tested more than this one. He became a man so he could sympathize with you. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel un- misunderstood? Are, are you in sickness? Uh, chronic, sick people, it's a lo- pain begets no friends. Pain will isolate you and make you uh, lonely. See those among us who have lived with chronic pain. You, after a while, you get tired of people asking, "How are you doing?" And you say, "Well, well, I'm hurting." He said, "Well, that's what you said the last time." Said, "Well, I was hurting the last time." Well, do you have another story? No, no. the The story goes on. I'm in pain. I live with pain. I hurt. I live with loneliness. I don't like this season. My husband's gone. My wife's gone. I've buried children. We buried my brother Paul a year ago. We can't believe he's gone, but he is. Pain. Misunderstanding. We used to sing a song, no one understands like Jesus, and you're absolutely right. No one does. Singleness. I won't be fulfilled until I'm married or I have a significant boyfriend or I, I want relationship. I don't want my present status. Who understands? Jesus says, I, I can sympathize with you. You see, it's interesting. In Greek, Greek mythology and Greek religion, Their gods were all, the goal was to be distant. Be distant. Matter of fact, there was a philosophical group that came off of Greek paganism called the Stoics. And Stoics were a brutal bunch. They were taught to never cry, they were taught never to show emotion. They would train their young boys by killing their pet in front of them, and the boy could not shed a tear. That was part of the training. You think of it as a soldier. You are so no emotion. For they said, if the gods can feel, they can be manipulated. And now God comes among us. He said, I can feel. I want to feel. I want to feel your pain. I want to feel the ache. It's amazing. Christians started hospitals. Christians started so many leprosariums, because Christians have a Savior that says, you can't be bad enough for God to be interested in you. You can't be bad off enough for God to visit you. This is why he came. This is why he came. Seven reasons. He came because he cares. He came in order to die for us. He came to begin a family of brothers. He came to defeat death and the devil. He came that he might represent us. He came to satisfy God's anger against us. And he came so he could sympathize, sympathize with us. I just saw a special the other night. I just fell into it accidentally and it was uh, a special regarding Pearl Harbor Day, December 7, 1941. Anybody remember Pearl Harbor Day? Anybody alive? And I was born three years after it. Pearl Harbor Day. And they had a remarkable story there about a guy named Joseph George. Joseph George came up in a rescue vessel, the Vestal, V-E-S-T-A-L, came alongside of the Arizona when it was on fire. They showed a picture of one sailor who had 70% of his body burned. And Joseph, this rugged, hard-drinking, rowdy kind of a sailor, he came up and was on the deck of that vessel, and he took a rope. I can't imagine the story. This is what they said. They were up here and he took that rope, and they said in the documentary, he threw it 70 feet, which I, I, I find incredible. I mean, light rope I can see, but whatever he's handling. Whoa. He threw it up, tie it off, and Joseph goes up and down, and he's showing these men on the burning Arizona, some of them are already on fire and have escaped. He's showing them, come down this rope that I just hurled, that we just attached. Come down. Come down, and we'll get you off this burning inferno. He saved six men. Never got any recognition for it. And the documentary showed, I tracked down, these men i think three of them still living in their 90s and the son of one of the men that survived petitioned and went all the way to the congressman of the arizona congressman of colorado some the man was from colorado Finally got all the way to Trump's office, so it must have happened in 2017. Finally got the naval department to say, this man saved our life. And he showed the picture of this man, had him, his son, and his grandchildren. He said, none of this would have ever happened had he not thrown us the rope. Had he not been able to show us how to crawl across there. One man spent a year in the burn center At one of our hospitals to survive. And they finally, on the deck of the Arizona in 2017, they gave to his daughter the Bronze Star for heroism. Well, let me tell you this we were on a burning ship called Humanity. And Jesus didn't throw us a rope, He came down, He got on board. And he rescued us one by one. He's my hero. He's my Savior. I don't know why I can't give him away better, why I can't represent him. The old songwriter, Charles Wesley said, Oh, for a thousand tongues my Redeemer's praise to sing. We're all stammers when it comes to describing him. But Hebrews says, He became a man, not to help angels, but to help you. You've got a great Savior today. I wish we could see him for fresh and anew. Our Father, there's often a broken heart on every pew, and I don't know how many broken hearts, lonely hearts, hurting bodies, misunderstood, unappreciated, falsely accused, suffering, suffering, suffering. It seems to be the human condition. But we have one who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities and asks, could I save you from your sins? Would you let me become the Lord of your life? Father, if there's anyone here today hearing your word and who has never put faith in Christ for themselves, I ask that you would save them. I can't save them. Only you, you didn't ask me to save them. You told me to tell them how to be saved. If they would but place faith in a crucified, risen, living Savior, they will have their sins forgiven. Death in their life will change forever because now they will have made arrangements with him who's the undertaker, Christ, the resurrection and the life. Oh, Father, what a great Savior we have in Jesus. Us poor men stagger trying to describe you. We can't improve, Father, on what you said about him. We believe it. We rest in it. We're going to heaven because of it. We bless your name forever if you're here today what keeps you from asking Christ into your heart what keeps you from saying right now I'm going to step over the thread because you said Jesus says I have to be wanted by you if you don't want me I won't force myself if you want me I'll come in come I'll give you eternal life come I'll forgive you of your sins come I want you but I won't make you. I want you to want me. Oh, if there's anyone here today living without hope and without Christ, may they come. In their heart, may they say, Lord Jesus, I want you. Please come in. Transform my life. I need a great Savior. Please save them as you've saved so many. We pray in Jesus' name And if you're a person today that the spirit of God's dealing with, if you're under conviction or you need guidance, as men hang out in the front, some of us pastors, we won't rush out. We won't do the walking for you. We won't make you come. That's between you and him, but we'll be here. We'll help you any way we can. May God bless you, saints. You're dismissed. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.